from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 63, recorded February the 22nd, 2023. I'm your master of ceremonies, Jason Snell, and with me as always is the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics and columnist at Puck News. It's Julia Alexander. Hi, Julia. Hi, Jason. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Good. I am recording this in a my buddy's gym room at his house about an hour north of the city because I'm mm. dog-sitting his lovely dog. So if there's a weird reverberation, I blame okay. the fact that he has a nice house and I don't mm. even know what that's like. And apologies to the fans of the uh, the honking and sirens who you won't get to hear those from Julia this time. Oh, yeah. There won't be any sirens. I know, week. right? Wow. Maybe, maybe, you know, I'm not going to ask Steven to dub some in because it's, it's, we'll just take a break <laughs> from, the, from the, the street noise uh, for one episode. <laughs> Well, last time we talked all about what we are calling, and we even call the episode Spulu, Sports mm-hmm. Hulu. It's the uh, it's the United Warner Brothers Discovery Disney and Fox sports streaming service that they didn't have a name for, that they didn't have a, a chief executive for. They might have found somebody, although that's not official yet. Uh, mm-hmm. An Apple exec, former Apple executive. Um, I just wanted to start this show by following up about. Uh, the reaction and more time to think about the Spulu a- announcement and uh, and uh, where you know where we go from here, what we're thinking now. I will mention something that I'm not surprised by in the least. I don't know if it will amount to anything, although I bet it. I bet it amounts to something, which is that Fubo TV has sued them, right? <laughs> saying that they're colluding. Um, I'm a Fubo TV subscriber, so I, can, I what I would say about this is Fubo TV is a uh, it's a VMP VMP TV, it's a you know virtual cable like like YouTube TV and Hulu Plus. It's always been sports focused. They have a lot of sports mm-hmm. channels. Their complaint points out that they have lots of non sports channels that they are forced mm-hmm. to take because that's the deal that these providers have with cable systems. Is you can't just get ESPN. You have to take every other channel that Disney wants you to take. And they're saying that this service is going to not have those channels and therefore they're being offered a special deal that nobody else has offered and that that is anti-competitive. Right. Um, I've seen some analysis of this. I think seen some from Bloomberg and from Puck. Um, and it sounds based on that analysis and actually sort of what I am assuming is that the end of this will probably be that Fubo will also be allowed to buy <laughs> sports channels without other channels and right. just compete with Spulu. It's going to be hard for them anyway, but at least be able to compete with them as another sports focused uh, streaming service. But, um, but I get why they're mad, right? Like this is a change in the whole, sure. the poison pill of like, well, if you want our popular channels, you have to pay for our unpopular channels too. I get why they would be mad. Yeah. And I mean, like, let's be clear here. The precedent was set with charter. Right. When Charter and Disney had their deal, Charter was allowed to not carry certain non-sports channels uh, and they took the Disney Plus ad supported offering and they brought Mm -hmm. that to some of their customers because all they really wanted was the various ESPN and sports networks. And so that moment really gave both Fubo the precedent now to say, like, this is happening elsewhere and also the ability to say, well, if Disney and this Bulu bundle doesn't have to carry their own networks that they're charging other people for, like it's cre- it's anti-competitive. But it also gives Disney and co the ability to say, sure, 
Like, we'll do that. Like, we've we've created this deal in the past. We've done aspects of this where we're going to figure out what makes a lot of sense. And, the, you know, the team sitting at Disney, the team sitting at WBD to a lesser extent, Fox to an even much lesser extent, really, we're talking about Disney here. They're aware that, like, the Disney Channel is no longer necessarily the most exciting network, especially when they bring a lot of those types of programming. You think about Freeform, they bring that to Hulu specifically. They're hyper aware of this. They're riding it out for as long as they can. If this were to get to a place due to this injunction where Fubo and their team of lawyers say, you know, we think it's anti-competitive, you have to carry this or we don't have to, Disney is at the point where they're going to go, sure, like, fine. Yep. Okay. Or you could also imagine a world where Disney goes, we'll include it, but we won't price as high because for us, we own the channel anyways. So for us, we can place some ad dollars there, but we're not necessarily having to carve out this 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 type of deal in order to like sell the various ESPNs and to make sure that they're carrying it all. They already have it. It's their own company. And they might say, we'll just throw Disney channels part of this, right? Like there are going to be non-sports channels available mm-hmm. within this skinny bundle. We should know what that looks like. And so I'm very curious to see how that plays out because I think that will really express where Disney sees some of their forward-looking values um, in terms of what they really consider valuable for the future of that company and how it's distributed. But when the FUBO thing happened, I was like, I don't know how you felt, Jason, but I was like, yeah, like the, the minute it happened, I was like, this makes sense. Yep. Like this was inevitable. Yep. I, yeah. I mean, it's three competitors getting together and somebody else saying, wait a second, um, don't do that. You're right. Actually, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that part of this uh, strategy is you use your otherwise not particularly valuable cable channels as sports rollover. And everybody has mm-hmm. done this in the past. Look at look at what the channels are for the Olympics on NBC, and you'll see that they are leaving no stone unturned in terms of finding other channels to put Olympics on this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So the latest example I would say of that is that Warner Brothers Discovery is going to use True TV as a rollover for college basketball. And they've done that in the past. And that's really funny because True TV is not a sports channel, right? It's it's a, one of these, I think, largely undifferentiated. I guess it's like reality based, but like basically it's just it's a cable slot. It's a cable channel that um, but once they program some sports on it, then you put it in the bundle, even though most of the time it doesn't have sports on it. Because sometimes it does. And that is, it can be a strategy, not just to find another place to put some of your live sports when you don't have enough places for it on the mm-hmm. traditional cable bundle. But also, it then marks that channel as like, oh, well, we've got to put that in the bundle. Because sometimes there's, you know, sometimes there's Olympics on CNBC. Sometimes they're curling on CNBC. You know, This is pure incentivization, right? It's how do we incentivize and create a value package while finding, it almost in many ways kind of feels like and i'm sure that all the executives who um, i know like love like our podcast will love this comparison um the the cause of the 2008 financial collapse right where you're looking at how the bonds were packaged and they were basically these terrible bonds of mortgages that weren't worth anything but they would package them together so you had a bunch Mm. of c-rated bonds that now were like an a-rated bond package and so they could buy them like this idea of these things individually might not be worth something but if they're all tied together and they kind of have a little bit of something now they're worth something to a potential buyer. And so if we think about that in terms of this media business that we're currently looking at, this idea that we're going to just play some sports elsewhere, we're going to hopefully increase some viewership there, we're going to hopefully bring some advertising over there, we're going to, you know, 
spread out some of our, our, our revenues, maybe find ways to kind of bring some consumers back into those spots. And we're going to be able to sell this to more cable providers because we need the whole package. Um, and there's, a, there, there's a, you know, that we're talking about networks that have 24 hours in a day. There's only so much that they can put on one or two networks. That's why there's like four ESPNs. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense. Again, whether or not, like, if we're talking about it, it is blatantly obvious to many people in the industry as well. And so, it, therefore, it's also obvious to their business affairs and legal teams. And so, how they really think about some of this in context of now being both supplier and distributor of sports content after the United States um, congressional uh, staffers are really looking into this. You know, there was a subcommittee hearing on kind of sports rights and, and sports broadcasting and sports streaming how that plays out and what these companies are allowed to do i'm not sure but in the meantime the name of the game is juicing as much as you can from these revenue driving bundles and revenue driving deals as much as possible and so if you have the ability to move stuff around why not right now and i know some people out there are probably saying well wait a second you don't need more channels because you're just streaming you can spin them up and and down as you need to but that's not a lot of these rules, a lot of these rights are not for streaming. They're they're for right. access in the cable bundle, and that that that's part of the deal here. And so there's, I know it's artificial, but there's also kind of this: if it's streaming rights, it's streaming rights. If it's not streaming rights, it's different rights, and there needs to be a place to put it in the cable bundle or the virtual cable bundle. Otherwise, it's streaming rights. If that, I know that that's weird, but that's sort of what it is. That saying, well, some of our games aren't going to be, we've run out of ESPNs, so we're going to just put this on streaming. Well, you can't you can't just take a, a thing that you already are under contract for and move it to ESPN Plus, unless the contract says you can. They need a, a home for it, and the same goes for things like I mean, not necessarily the Olympics, but there, there, I'd, I'd argue with the Olympics. What NBC is doing is, it's transforming. It's you know increasing the value of its existing slots because you might as well fill them all with Olympics when there's no, when, you know, otherwise CNBC doesn't have a lot going on at night, right? Like so, they fill it full of Olympics or on the weekend. Uh, but yeah, right. you're right. It, it, it's optimization of what you've got. Um, you wrote a piece on Puck about this. Um, and, and uh, the thing that I took away from that is that what this is, is, uh, the Spulu idea is sort of the R and D lab for execs, especially Bob Iger to sort of like, let's see, you know, let's see what happens. Right. And, and it's not even our real thing. It's this other thing. Um, but you, you, in that piece, uh, and in your, or your tweets about it, you said, you know, rearranging the deck chairs doesn't do anything to address future audiences or even today's audience, you've got to ask, you know, who does this product serve? ESPN over the top seems like it asks that. Spulu barely extends a runway. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago on the, on the last mm-hmm. episode, and it's this idea that this feels like a placeholder. Um, but but yep. really what I was arguing in that piece is for all the companies involved, I think Disney's the best position. I think Fox mm-hmm. is the most interesting position. I think Warner Brothers Discovery is the most, um, most um, desperately positioned. <laughs> I think you really get a sense of, okay, we're going to collect data that we can share with advertisers, that we're going to share with our programmers, that we are going to over overanalyze, that we're really going to understand what specific leagues are driving um, acquisition? What specific leagues are, are leagues are, are retaining? What leagues are we underpaying for? What leagues are we overpaying for? 
And most importantly, when you're building out a platform that is easy to cancel direct to consumer, how does this operate? How does this allow us to to really build out a slate over 18 months? So when we're thinking about how we really maximize the efficiency of our investment, we feel really good about where we're coming in from uh, and what we're leaving on the table. And so I think this will give these three companies the ability to understand this for their own services. Because um, if you look at it, right, like like I don't understand, we talked about this again last episode, you know, Jason, and I really couldn't figure out answers for these things. But like, I don't understand what Bleacher Report sports add on for Max is at this point. Like, like that feels like what this is. But this, the, the Spulu bundle will help Fox kind of establish a foothold in, in a DTC market. But this is not the, the DTC product that's going to solve everything. And Fox is still, you know, looking at a dwindling cable business, even as broadcast viewership kind of increases. Um, their, their viewership on pay TV Fox Sports is up year over year, but, um, you know, not hugely, not to the level that we we would really want to be able to see it. And while it's the best positioned um, broadcaster within kind of that, that, that also has cable networks, I would argue that it's, you know, still trying to figure out, okay, well, if we don't have a DTC platform like Sony, but we're also not just a, you know, content arm sealer like Sony, how do we really navigate this? And then for Disney, I think it really gets them to the point, again, of being able to build out that slate, being able to understand what their audiences are looking for in an app experience, what they're missing, how they design around the content of Disney Plus and Hulu, and really figuring out the best way to maximize um, their direct-to-consumer offering. So I think this will last, again, three, four, five years. Like, I don't think it's going to be gone in 18 months. It will take 18 months to like launch and get off the ground. But I do think it is a placeholder um, for what comes next. I, I think the line I used, which I, I stole from an executive I was talking to, is, you know, you really need to build for for where the puck is going and skate towards it, not where the puck was. And so this idea that this doesn't really do much of that, like the, this is, we've had this to Jason's point and to Fubo's point, like Fubo had this, like, like the, there's been other options yeah. to get access to content like this within a bundle. And this is just I think their best way of saying, okay, well, we're going to move to direct consumer. We're going to alleviate some of our financial pressures. We're going to hopefully bring over some cord nevers and and cord cutters. um, And we're going to collect as much data as we can for our next initiative. Yeah. The the thing I keep coming back to is that this is a new product based on an old business model, right? Yes. It is. You could say, oh, it's Spulu. It's shiny and new. It's a new idea. But it's not. It's using the existing cable channel rebroadcast as a virtual cable company essentially it's using that model to create a product now which doesn't mean it's not a transitional product or a product that could have an end game that looks more modern but that they the only way to pack because this is the truth of it the only way to pack some of this content into a direct-to-consumer service is by doing it this way because this is the only way they really have the rights to do some of that. So I get it, but um, we also shouldn't get like super excited about it because it, it, it's new product, but not new business model at all. It is the, it is just another iteration on the classic business model, um, which is why I find it so perplexing. But I also understand, you know, when we do talk about sports broadcast rights and we talk about the RSNs and things like that, it's the same thing. I mean, everybody kind of knows if not where it's going what the elements are going to be when it all settles down but the fact is you got a bunch of contracts that run for some of them run for one more year some of them run for 10 or 15 years and as long as those contracts are there 
you can't just flip the switch. You can't just rip the Band-Aid off. You're just you're 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 a little stuck. And sometimes the money is good, but you're stuck. And that Spulu feels very much like, look, this is all we can do right now, but it's better than nothing. So, OK. Absolutely. Um, John Orend, your now colleague at Puck, wrote a piece about this as well. Um, the Sports Bundle Holy Wars have begun. Um, I like referring to him and having him be at Puck and not at uh, Source Business Journal. Me too. It's fun. I personally like it too. It's one of your, it's great. One of your colleagues. Um, he had made a point that I thought was really interesting, which is it's also, uh, Spulu is also firing some shots at the two left out parties because Comcast with Peacock and Paramount with Paramount Plus have aggressively simulcast their broadcast channels content on those services so if you get the idea here is you get uh you get uh, cbs football on paramount plus for example or you get nbc content like uh like they put a uh they put a football game on peacock uh, a playoff game and that there is some frustration at disney fox and wbd about the strategy that they're using to basically eat away from the power of and and the value of the cable bundle and of which is ironic for Comcast but and of their broadcast in order to build up their streaming businesses and that that I think his take was I re- I originally thought that they would probably be a part of this and I think you might have said this too but now now maybe not like now maybe Spulu will never be like eventually everybody because this this might actually be kind of aggressively a uh uh, a reaction to the strategies of Comcast and Paramount, which I hadn't really thought of before. Well, well, there was a great interview a while back, um, and I'm going to fudge a lot of this, so I apologize in advance. But between uh, Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson, or sorry, I think it was with, sorry, I'm sorry, it was with Michael Nathanson of Moffat Nathanson, one of the most well-regarded um, analysts within kind of the technology, media, and telecom business um, um, industry businesses. And he writes very often, very prolifically about um, the streaming business and kind of the decline of the cable business, which is what his partner, Craig Moffat, is, is really an expert in. And he, um, Michael Nathanson was doing an interview with Ben Thompson, uh, who we all really love. And they talked, and something that they talked about was this idea that Paramount and NBC Universal have effectively cheated their way through sports, um, for streaming. And it, and they say this was like maybe a year ago. And they said, like, if you're Disney, if you're Fox, there's a sense that's like, I, yeah, why is this allowed? How come you can do this and we can? A big thing is to to Jason's point, like these are broadcasters, right? It's CBS, NBC, so they can kind of simulcast it. It gets much more difficult with ESPN content. That's why ESPN has not been li- simultaneously streamed on ESPN Plus because now you've got um, affiliate fees, you've got um, carriers like Comcast and like Charter who are saying like we pay you all this money to have access to these games and you're kind of going against us. This is why for so long W um, Warner Brothers Discovery didn't have CNN streaming on 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 Max or or CNN Plus didn't have live CNN streaming, um, and so there was this conversation about like at some point do you just cut out Paramount and Comcast? Are you just kind of like they're going to do their thing? What if we team up and do our own thing? And um, I, I won't go so far as to credit Michael Nathanson and Ben Thompson with Spulu, although arguably everyone who we talk about reads both of them um, quite quite frequently, and, and they talk to them quite frequently, so maybe they did. Um, but I, I think this was 
really that inevitable end game of, okay, well, if Paramount and NBC are going to do their own thing, how can we beat them at it? Let's bundle. And I think there's this really interesting moment that's coming back. And I, I've been watching it play out across different clients that I work with. I've watched it play out um, with, with other companies that I'm aware of. And it's almost this like remembrance. It's, it's, I always describe it as like when you forget how good something is and then you see it or you come across it again and you're like, oh man, like that was so good. Like, why did I stop playing that game or why did I stop watching that show or whatever it might be? And it's this idea that you can create merged bundles or, or merged products without merging your companies, right? Like, like this idea of like, hey, we can do something together without having to actively buy a company and go through like the red tape and the potential not wanting to actually buy out a full company. Like, I don't think there's any world in which Disney is interested in like Warner Brothers Discovery, but they are interested in having a lot of the basketball games that they don't have access to. And so this idea of saying, hey, we can combine and create a product with 30% across the board. This is what we did 15 years ago with Hulu, right? And it, and it, and it would have worked out if we had, maybe it would have worked out if we had the same strategic direction. And now we have the knowledge of how kind of streaming works to an extent. We can go in and do this. I think there's this moment happening again where a lot of these companies are not necessarily going to combine everything into one service. I don't think you're going to get back to a cable, nor is Netflix or Apple or Amazon going to buy all these companies. But I do think you will see some of these um, really interesting merged bundles come back to fruition among some of these companies. And I think my prediction of what would really help some of these companies, and I've said this for a while, and I think this is less to do with Spulu, but I think like ESPN OTT could really benefit here, is this idea of like, if you're ESPN OTT, you've got your ESPN um, editorial division, right? Very big editorial division. They, they spend a lot, of, a, a lot of work there. If you're really trying to compete with that, and you're maybe WBD, you've got um, Bleacher Report on Mac, or your Apple, or your Amazon, you don't really have that editorial structure that really creates an app where there's full of news and commentary and video and all this fun stuff. Creating a partnered bundleship with like The Athletic, right? So now you're saying, okay, not only do you have access to sports via Amazon, but also you're going to get like a New York Times subscription discounted or included within a bundle. And now you're really touching on various necessities that people feel like they're getting um, used to and you use your UI UX power to really integrate this idea of, okay, well, I can read The Athletic within this app, or it's going to direct me directly to it, and I don't have to necessarily... All of this thinking about the primary screen, secondary screen, and like the app experience you're trying to give someone that really creates a value product in a way that is going to compete with others where they have resources that you don't, or they have strengths that you don't, I think we will start to see a lot more of that. And it'll happen both within the entertainment industry, like we're seeing with Spulo, um, and kind of outside of it as well, as as we see more of these different subscription services figure out like what are we missing and how can we create a product that answers these questions without again having to like acquire a company or sell ourselves to another company. I um I have a I don't know if it's a theory, but something I wanted to run past you. Let me know what you think about this. I'm so which excited. Is, it's about the don't get too excited, but it's about <laughs> it's about the inevitability of the great rebundling. And it goes mm. like about and it's regarding sports rights. And it goes like this, which is as I've I've said before on this podcast, um, one of the things that drives sports rights fees is the the idea that you can lose money on the rights fee, but you get it back because it provides some other value to you. So some of it is about like sports rights often tend towards something a little bit grander than a, a basic relationship of i give you this you get you know i earn that 
kind of thing or basic business right. relationship. Okay. So think about a future where every sport on TV is direct to consumer from the team or the league. Okay. Right. So NFL's on NFL. Baseball's on baseball. Now, as a fan, I think, oh, this is great. NHL's on NHL. I just buy, I just, I only care about baseball. I'll just buy the baseball package. It's got my local team. It's got other teams. I'm done. I don't have to buy any other sports. If I care about another sport, I'll buy it. Okay, great. That is a future where the number of fans you've got who are willing to pay will determine how much money you make from your media rights. Great, great. Except what would be better? Look at what the NFL has done. Who are the Mm -hmm. NFL's broadcast partners? It's ESPN, ABC, Mm -hmm. NBC, CBS, Mm -hmm. and Fox. It's literally everybody. Right. Um, Who the NBA is doing its contract negotiations right now. And the thought is that it will have three or four partners for that deal. So what that tells me, and I, I, I think that we've learned is leagues make more money if they can split up their package. Right. Because everybody wants a piece of it. So what, I, what I'm running past you is this idea, which is inevitably there will be more partners because it makes more money for the league to have more partners. And because there are more partners, because they want a piece of the NFL and they can't buy the whole thing, mm-hmm. but they can buy part of it and everybody wants in there. You end up in a situation where if you're a fan of literally at this point it's like literally everything except mls (laughs) which apple bought part and parcel but you you can't buy one thing right it's impossible to buy one thing you can't buy one product and get the nfl you have to buy four you can't buy one product and get the nhl you have to you know you you can get some of it but like i think about the nba I, i can I don't get, because I'm a Fubo subscriber, I don't get TNT and TBS. I get them in Bleacher Report now in in Max. That's fine. But like last year, um, watching the Warriors, uh, and there's some games that just aren't on TV for me because they're TNT exclusives, right? Or or an ESPN exclusive game or an Apple TV exclusive game that you don't get. And and, and I my way of, of, of hashing all of this out there is just to say, if that's where the money is, and I think it is, it's inevitable that anybody who is a fan of anything is going to have to buy a bundle because I, I know it feels good as a fan to say, oh, I really only just want to buy the one thing. But the businesses don't want you to buy the one thing. The businesses want you to have to buy their piece of that thing along with all the other pieces, at which point we're back to Spulu. We're back to the great rebundling. I just I look at the economics and I think there is never unless you're a very smaller niche league like MLS, there's it's highly unlikely that there's going to be a moment where you say, oh, well, no, no, we're just going to do direct to consumer. There will always be more money to be made by splitting the rights up, at which point all of us will have to pay full price for the bundle. And. That's just what it is. Yeah. And and people love bundles. Like, here's the thing is like everyone loves a bundle. Like, it's just that's why cable was propositioned as a bundle. Like, it was, but they was always like, we're selling you the bundle. You're getting all of these for this slight discount, even though it didn't feel like it. And it probably wasn't. 
it was this idea that you're getting all of this for this lump sum as opposed to just, you know, this one offer for one network or whatever it might be. And I agree with you. I think that also you can you can kind of see this happening with certain business moves, right? Like if you look at Amazon, uh, not not acquiring, excuse me, but investing in Diamond Sports Group. Diamond, yeah, yeah. The idea is not that they're going to take all of this exclusively. Like that may generate, like like if they bring everything exclusively, you may get the hardest of the hardcore fans to sign up for your service. But what makes a lot more sense is to say we're going to offer it via Prime Video for those who are going to come here, but we're also going to distribute it elsewhere because that's where we're we're going to maximize the potential TAM yeah. of the product. And so that's what the leagues are saying. The leagues are like, we want to go be where we, as many places as we can be, and we'll have these partners so that we, we get the media rights that we need. Uh, or the or the 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 monetary value we're seeking for the media rights that we have, and if you're Disney, if you're Warner Brothers Discovery, if you're Paramount, if you're NBC Universal, there's a part of you that understands this. And so what you do is you find a way to create a unified product that is like here's access to all sports. Where the difference really comes out is like then the original programming on top of it. Sports fans also uh, breaking news. Fans of other things, right? Like they don't yeah. want to. Like there there's some people like who may just want to watch sports, but they also might be interested HBO. They might be interested in Mandalorian. They might be interested in Superman, whatever it is. And so that is where you really get into this qualifying place of, okay, if we create a sports package, but we're finding ways to bundle this with our general entertainment offering, where can we really succeed in the general entertainment offering? And I think that's where you see some of the um, slate planning really come into play. So this idea of, okay, if we're Disney, we're part of the Spoolu bundle, we think that that might have 5 million subscribers. Of those, how many are already subscribed to Disney Plus as a bundle or Hulu? Um, how many are not subscribed to that? Can we bring them over? How do we plan around basketball fans are really interested in Star Wars versus yeah. football fans are really interested in Marvel? And like, how do we we figure that out? But there's no question in mind that, well, there's two things that I have no doubt about. One is that the sports rights um value that, that, that like the monetary value a lot of these leagues are seeking out for the most part across most leagues has hit a peak right we think about the fact that sports rights yeah. deals happen like every 10 years 10 years from now like we're not going to get the same level again paid tv will be in a much worse place a lot of these companies might not even exist and so you kind of got your two or three or four partners who are willing to put in what they can but they're kind of the only partners right unless you know meta comes up with like a great like there, there's huge quest adoption and like meta is a, a, a potential partner now so like unless things change on the tech side, the media players currently in play, um, they're not going to ante up. And even companies like Amazon and Apple, ten years from now, like their strategies for their uh, um, entertainment offerings are going to look a lot different. So like, yeah. what are they doing? But this, so, so that's one. So the sports rights are going to go down. But also, people like like all of research shows you that uh, shows us rather when we look at it that the vast majority of sports fans are not just fans of one sport. They have a favorite sport. That's what Jason was saying. Like, I really love baseball. Like, they have a favorite sport, but they often will watch multiple sports. So they do want access to everything. Like, an NFL fan also typically likes the NBA. They typically like the MLB. They, they typically like the NHL to, again, varying degrees, but they're interested in watching it. And so I think that's what this aggregation of rebundling kind of looks like. It's its idea of, okay, if you can, but if you can control having the vast majority of games, whether that's through a bundle like Spulu, whether that's through pure acquisition like Amazon's trying to do because they have the money for it, and then aggregate or really be a useful one-stop shop for, for viewers looking to go find another game and it's somewhere else, that's really where you're going to see the annoyance go down and you're going to create an actual really strong utility app. 
Um, but I think we are so far from that because they're still trying to figure out what the rights look like, how they can share those rights, how they can create a product together, what those products look like. If that type of product survives, right? Like we're talking about Spulu, they're still building it. Like, what does that look like? But I do agree with you, Jason. I think eventually there is a great rebundling of sorts. It won't be all of the streamers, but it will be elements of it that 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 they go, okay, well, we need to right. do, we need to partner on this in some capacity because everybody's going to want everything, you know, some to some degree. You're not going to be able to buy one thing probably. Right. You probably have to buy four, and at that point, there's some advantage there in saying, okay, I I see what you're doing. We can bundle something for you. By the way, I know we're going to get. People saying, what do you mean everybody loves a bundle? I don't want a bundle. I want everything a la carte. But I would just say that's not true. Mm-hmm. If you think about like, what if I said that we no longer were going to supply you with streaming services at all? And remember back, you know, and some people still do this, when you bought or rented movies or TV shows on iTunes, all your favorite shows and TV and movies and everything, it's all going to be a la carte from now on. And the good news is the movies are, you know, $5 per or $8 per. The bad news is every single thing that you want to watch, you have to buy that episode. You have to buy that movie. Well, nobody wants to do that. And that's why it's mm-hmm. not like that is because nobody wants to pay for every single episode of a TV show. You just get Netflix. Netflix is itself a bundle of content, right? That's and exactly so like, right. If you take it to the extreme, it's like, that's why everybody loves a bundle, because economically, it makes sense to do it that way. And then you pay one fee and you get a whole big bundle of content. That's how it works. So it is sort of inevitable. Um, Okay. That's a lot of spooloo, but, you know. Good theory. Great theory. Big news. Yeah. Inevitable. You you just, uh, yeah. I love. I would love for there to be a direct con- to consumer offering, and maybe there will be some. But it's like it's hard to imagine the NFL is going to turn on having deals with four major entertainment companies who will pay them a lot of money to just say no, no, no. We'll do it ourselves. It's just hard to believe that that would be economically better for them than the price that they would get paid and the risk they wouldn't have to take, <laughs> and they'll let their partners take the risk. I just, I just don't see it. This episode of Downstream is brought to you by Good Chop. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. For a lot of people, that means focusing on eating well and having enough energy to do everything you want to do. We're all busy people. We don't have time to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. Who has the time to do that? That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver. It offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule, the products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and then cook when you want, choose from over 70 high-quality cuts, 100% grass-fed ribeyes, USDA prime filet mignon, free-range and organic chicken breasts, pork tenderloin, thick-cut bacon, just naming a few, sustainable and wild-cut seafood as well, including salmon, Pacific cod, scallops, shrimp, and more. They sent me a box. Oh my goodness, my freezer is full of great stuff. We've had the ground beef. I know it doesn't sound exciting. It was really good ground beef. I'm actually thawing a T-bone steak right now. I'm gonna maybe do a sous vide with some of this stuff. The chicken looks really good. Like, the, look, I also am not going to go to the butcher, but what I also have found is that it's super convenient to have a little collection of stuff in my freezer so I can choose what I'm going to make for that day. And then I can thaw it uh, overnight in my fridge, I can thaw it real fast in my sous vide maker on uh, low temperature, which is really great. Or I could even just sous vide it um, or just take it out to the grill. Like there's so many ways to do it. I love 
uh, as a person who works from home, not having to go to the store because I know that I can choose from those great chicken breasts or that ground beef or those really nice steaks, all of which are sitting in my freezer right now. And then the quality once they are up and running is remarkable. Unlike many other companies, Good Chop sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries so you can support local family farms and independent ranchers in the U.S. and it won't cost a fortune. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Good Chop especially prides itself on sourcing meat that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones ever. No artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. And they're so confident in the quality of their cuts. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee. You will love Good Chop or you will get your money back. So go to goodchop.com slash downstream120 and use downstream120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's G-O-O-D-C-H-O-P dot com slash downstream 120 and code downstream 120 for $120 off goodchop.com slash downstream 120 code downstream 120. Thank you to Good Chop for sponsoring this show and filling my freezer with this amazing meat. All right, next topic. John Oliver wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. I like his show. I enjoy his show. Mm-hmm. Um, he has apparently gained some following among people who don't have HBO by doing um, clips on YouTube. They take their, their main segment and they put it on YouTube like the next day. And I've occasionally watched them that way, but I have HBO. So I also watch them the, the other way. Um, for this season, they've adjusted their posting schedule. They're not going to post those clips on YouTube um for like a few days it's not like they're not going to post them but for a few days and the the according to max and hbo this is because they want to see if they can induce people who enjoy watching those john oliver clips the next day to pay for hbo Um, right and john oliver has said i don't love this that they that they chose to do this but it's their you know they 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 pay for the show so they get to choose what to do um i'm fascinated by this because on one level the question is what business are they in? And right. I think the business that they're in is selling HBO subscriptions. So right. getting some cachet and getting some brand recognition by putting content free on YouTube is great. But if you don't believe that it's actually, if you believe you're leaving money on the table, I could see why you might say this. The alternate view would be the people who are watching this are never going to be HBO subscribers. So at least you can capture them in a different way. As long as I guess you have some way YouTube premium, pre-roll ads, whatever it is to make some money from them. I'm curious what you think, because I know you've said a lot about how YouTube is. In fact, I have it in my notes here. You know, once again, the number one streaming service in the U.S. in January was YouTube, 8.6%. Netflix behind it, right? So we don't, I I was cornered, a little tangent, I was cornered at at the uh, event I was last weekend by by some very lovely, it was after I was on a panel about streaming, listeners of this podcast. And one of them said to me, you guys don't talk about YouTube enough. And I Mm -hmm. said, well, we do talk about Julia is, I feel like you are, are very... Um, clear about the influence of YouTube when a lot of times the conversation steers away from it, but um, but it is it it is huge, and so to see this instance where HBO is making some decisions about like do we do we hide our content behind the paywall? Do we pull some of it out? 
And when do we pull it out? Is It's not a week delayed even. It was a day delayed, and now it's a few days delayed. To me, I look at this and I'm like, eh, I don't know if that's that big a deal. But I think it's interesting that John Oliver himself says, I don't like this. I want, I want to give I want to give my content away the next day. And I I just I'm curious what you think about this entire uh, what what this is, this in particular and maybe what it says about traditional programming strategies versus uh, programming on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, I think you're spot on. Right. Like I think they're they are in the subscription video business. They are not in the free ad supported business, nor are they digital creators. Um, also, I get you get where John Oliver is coming from because John Oliver is a brand. John Oliver is not necessarily tied to HBO or HBO Max. They carry his show, but eventually that show will end. John Oliver will not like he will go find somewhere else to be. He wants a younger audience so that way they can better sell whatever his next project is. So you understand where his motives are coming from. Um, First of all, to the lovely fan uh, or listener who came up and said, like, I listen to the show. We don't talk about YouTube enough. I agree with you to an extent. Uh, I talk about YouTube all the time uh, in the Puck Slack. I am trying to write about it all the time. uh, And frequently, uh, my lovely editors will say we've already written about YouTube. (laughs) Um, Here's what I will say about this. The thing that I wrote about uh, my newsletter last week that I or this week that I didn't have enough time, enough space to get into is that there's a third component. So, so if you look at like the the potential scenario of this, right, you've got one, which is they're not HBO, HBO subscribers. And to Jason's point, if they delay it on YouTube, they're hopeful that the conversation will carry via like Twitter or there will be fans who have been watching on YouTube and they will be pushed to go watch on HBO or on Max. This is the conversion effect. So they're hoping they're converting. Um, the other alternative is that the, this audience is not interested in HBO or HBO Max. If they were, they were they would have already had it. Um, and so they're just watching John Oliver on YouTube. And they're happy to wait another couple of days because it's free programming and they'll get a notification when it drops. And that's fine. The third component, which is something I didn't think about um, and I didn't have enough room, even if I did think about it, to, to publish, is there's an audience potential who do have Max. But don't watch John Oliver on Max. It's just they their media diet consumes of them watching other programming on Max. Mm-hmm. And they watch John Oliver on Monday morning or Monday afternoon. It's part of their day of, of their habit, right? The thing about YouTube that's really important, which is why it's such a powerful system, is that YouTube creates habit the way that um, the New York Times almost has with like connections in Wordle, right? Like, so you go and you if, if you're like me and my my household... Um, you wake up and you play like those are the things you do. You like play yeah. those games and like by 9 a.m. you're doing work, you're having your coffee. Um, for a lot of people, their favorite YouTubers will drop videos around the same time. Like like Philip DeFranco will often drop his news of the day video at like 4 p.m., 5 p.m. There's this idea that I go and this is part of my media diet. I watch this here. This is part. Maybe I watch John Oliver at lunch on YouTube. And so not having it there might convert in terms of engagement and attention the audience that is giving that, you know, five, six, seven million views to the video on YouTube, they might, you know, give it to the actual program on Max if they have to wait two days. My theory as someone who has covered YouTube for many, many years, as someone who knows a lot of um, YouTube execs, as someone who studies streaming and really looks at the kind of human behavior of, of all this is that people are attuned to their platform of choice. 
So if they're choosing to watch something on YouTube, it is going to be very difficult to get them to not watch something on YouTube. There's another really interesting um, kind of sidebar on this uh, um, program that's going to test this for me called Has Been Hotel. It's A24's first adult animation series. It's on Amazon Prime Video, but it had its original pilot on YouTube. Like it found its global audience on YouTube. So I'm excited to see how the YouTube to Amazon Prime Video audience goes. Like they've been chasing them with the boys and Invincible. Um, but but normally those audiences are in tune to YouTube. Like that's they go to YouTube for a specific thing. They go to the streaming services for a specific thing. Rarely do those overlap. This is why I said that Amazon reportedly spending, you know, close to $100 million on a Mr. B show was a waste of money because that audience was not going to follow Mr. Beast to Amazon. They get enough of Mr. Beast on YouTube. And so that they're happy with what they, with what they get there. The platform is what they really enjoy. And this is the other part of the YouTube angle with John Oliver, especially that, I mean, I know executives at HBO, like they, they, they thought they've thought about this. They're under no impression that like this move is going to drive huge amounts of subscriptions, right? They, they have to do something to try and figure it out for, for streaming. So like they're experimenting and I applaud experimentation in this era because we have to, but they're under no illusion that this is going to be hugely successful in driving more conversions. The interesting thing about John Oliver as a talk show host in many ways um, is kind of similar to what we see both with the night, the late night hosts, you know, Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, the way they approach YouTube, which is they leaned hard into their digital audience, their digital strategy as their broadcast audience dwindles. Um, but really, the best thing that we can take away from how talk show hosts approach YouTube and, and smartly is actually looking at, a, at someone like Joe Rogan. Where when you have a really lengthy podcast or a lengthy video, you tend to break up those videos into different segments. So that way you can actually target using metadata on the back end different audiences. So when they're watching another video, because you're both popular and whitelisted. So in this case, John Oliver's got a big audience and it's whitelisted because it's HBO. It's more likely for YouTube to recommend that type of video if it is a relatable subject matter because it's authoritative. So they really try to figure out how to how to um, diminish borderline content. This is where they really pull it in. So smart producers and smart digital uh, strategists on these teams will figure out ways to target different audiences to juice the number of viewers and bring more awareness to the creator in the sense that they then follow and then subscribe. And now they're watching this r- routinely. So with John Oliver, you we look at his videos and the, the views and they go anywhere from 2.5 million to like 12 million. And the difference other than like virality, right? So let's say he does something that's really funny and it picks up on Twitter and then people are going to YouTube to watch it. The big difference is subject matter. And so certain audiences are coming for different subject matter and they're, and so that audience, you're, you're not just trying to convert the John Oliver audience on YouTube. You're actually trying to convert 50 different audiences who are coming to his video because they're watching something else. And now this is a related topic. The example I use in my story, because um, it's one of my favorite John Oliver uh, episodes or segments in recent years, um, Jason will know what I'm talking about, is the McKinsey episode, where he really dives into McKinsey, and which is a, a, a one of the, it is the leading um, global co- management consulting firm. And so if you were somebody who was on YouTube and you were like McKinsey interview prep, right? McKinsey questions, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, what is going to be recommended to you is a John Oliver video. And you might click it because you're deep in the weeds and yeah, you've got a little bit of a 30 minute break. It doesn't matter that that show is on Monday or that you found it two months later. Time does not actually uh, exist on YouTube. Uh, like people come to videos whenever they can. So I just think I applaud the experimentation, but I, I think we spend too much time thinking about content and how audiences will follow content 
versus platform and how content can suit audiences on platform, which is the Netflix strategy. Like, like that is Netflix's, like, we have suits and this fits our audience. So we are going to find other ways to support this audience. The alternative is kind of the HBO, what we're seeing here. It is what Disney's doing. It's what all the other companies are doing, which is if we pull the content to us, like The Office and NBC, they will come to us because they want to find The Office. Typically, some will, for sure. There are certain shows where people will follow it and they go, great. Um, most of the time, there are other types of shows that feel very similar. A great example is like Bravo and the reality shows that are on Netflix. Like Bravo has a brand and the Bravo audience loves them, but the Netflix audience is also fulfilled by a lot of the reality shows that are there. So they might not necessarily jump ship for Bravo if they're not huge Bravo fans, but they're, they're, they are getting into reality television. Um, so I think that's just something that we need to think about with with, with this with, with John Oliver and I think John Oliver is hyper aware that his future audience is on YouTube. They're not necessarily on Max. And obviously the Max executives, to their credit, it is their job. And as Jason pointed out at the top of the segment, like they are not in the business of YouTube. They're not in the business of digital. They are in the business of streaming subscriptions and engagement on those videos for advertisers. And so they have to try and find a way to bring it over. I don't think it's going to be successful, but I applaud all experimentation. Yeah, I mean, I really liked what you said about the fact that that um, you know YouTube YouTube is YouTube essentially, <laughs> and uh, I I keep thinking about that that um, you can YouTube is powerful, and uh, nobody really knows like it, there's not a one right thing for YouTube. Like there are lots of different things that are right for YouTube and for YouTube audience. I love to see the experimentation. If it makes HBO more comfortable to give it an, another couple of days and post it on Thursday mornings instead of Monday mornings, fine, right? Like you're losing something, but you are also gaining something. I'm not sure how much of that audience is going to, is only not converting to Max because they get to watch some, but not all of the show on right. YouTube because it's right. not all the show. I've been fascinated. So I've been spending more time on YouTube lately as well. Um, mostly because I finally gave up and bought a YouTube premium subscription because Ooh. I couldn't take the ads anymore. That's your content strategy is make the ads so terrible that they have to pay. Um, yeah. So what I've discovered that with some delight is some of my favorite YouTube channels are channels for a show that is not primarily on YouTube, but they do clips and compilations and, and and like I'll, I'll mention Taskmaster, which if you're outside the UK, it is actually kind of primarily on YouTube. But one of the things I love about the ta it's a game show from the UK. Uh, it's great. It's one of my favorite TV shows. It's amazing. Um, but their YouTube team is pulling highlights of different things, different segments from different seasons in themes and puts them together and post them on YouTube. Yep. And I love it because I've, I've seen every episode of the UK version of Taskmaster. I've seen them all. Um, but I will go back, but I'm not at the point. I'm not so hardcore, like one of my friends to go back and rewatch seasons of Taskmaster. Right. That hasn't happened yet, but boy, I see those clip packages where it's 10 minutes of this, this, these sorts of funny things that happened over the, 15 seasons or whatever of the show i love them i absolutely love them and it's one of those things where it's like this is not even really about the show it's about extending my experience with the show now we could argue and i know that you and i've argued this before this is also the sort of thing you should do for your shows 
inside your streaming service, right? Like it shouldn't just be, oh, well, and then we posted a bunch of stuff on YouTube for people to like. But like, I, I think to myself, these are also extras. You should do this for your Disney Plus shows or your Netflix shows and put them in Netflix. But, but, but I also think like to your to your exact point, and like I'm so glad that you said that. Also, like if anyone here has not watched Taskmaster, if you have Taskmaster people in your life, they will tell you over and over again until you watch it. That it's on it YouTube. Is a great if it's you're great. outside the UK, it, it's basically all on YouTube. It's legally all on YouTube. So yeah. But but um it, what you what what you're saying is actually really common with other um talk show hosts as well. So yeah. I mean uh, not a talk show host, but uh, like Graham Norton, he does this where he'll do like the Mar like the Avengers collection. It's just interview compilations with the Avengers cast across different years. But what I will say, which is I think I'm glad you brought this up, is like Jason and I have said on this podcast over and over again, you know, why don't you do like explainer videos and YouTube or these compilation or oh, sorry, on your app and these compilation videos? And although I think they should still do that because I don't think it would take much time, um, I also think there is a different expectation of uh content when you're on youtube right like there's a level of yes. where you're sitting there you're watching on your phone and you're kind of like okay i've got 10 minutes like i'm gonna do this and it's on youtube and it's fine i can like pay attention not pay attention you're scrolling you get into like rabbit holes i do this when i watch like conan clips or seth meyers clips and you're kind of going through and you can pick and choose it's all or uh, organized very well um and i think this is the other issue with like all like the max scenario which is it's not that, oh, John Oliver on Max is the same, to Jason's point, like, it's not. It's not the full episode. John Oliver on Max is the same as John Oliver on YouTube. It is, like, the experience that I am expecting out of a YouTube exactly. 20 minutes versus the experience I'm expecting out of a 30-minute Max thing is so different and solves so many different needs that I think it's still really hard for a lot of these executives to, like, wrap their heads around that. But these are doing, even though YouTube has, like, the people are seeking out this content on YouTube they know it's on Max. Like HBO plays at the beginning of the video. It's an HBO YouTube channel. They're hyper aware that this is here, but that's not the reason that they're using YouTube to watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. They're using YouTube because it's YouTube and it's YouTube sized content on YouTube. And it's just, it's fascinating. We will try to talk about to the point of those people who came up to me after my panel. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about YouTube because I, YouTube is, I mean, it's, it's playing a different game on one level but on another level it is it is playing the same game which is getting people's attention and this this story with john oliver clips shows you like the importance of youtube for everybody else to a certain degree so we have to talk about it. the the one other um thing i will tie to this because i think it's just as important as youtube because i'm seeing companies pursue it as a strategy and i think it's a bad idea <laughs> and this will probably come back to bite me in the butt but um I, uh, so, so, so we're talking about like different um, expectations of experience with different apps and you're seeing a lot of companies now say, well, kids, and it's always kids, right? Kids are watching shows on TikTok in like one minute, like, like segments. And so therefore there's this huge appetite for these shows. They wrongfully misdirected the idea of suits being popular on TikTok to net. So the reason it was big on Netflix, it got big on Netflix first and then people started making things on TikTok. But like there's this idea that oh well if it's really big on tiktok because kids are watching in like two minute segments across 150 different videos they'll watch the whole thing on on netflix or or peacock or whatever and it's like first of all i promise you you're those kids are not going across 150 videos to watch full episode they don't have the energy for that and if they were going to do that and it was on netflix which they likely have because their parents in the household they would just go to netflix to watch it what they're doing is seeing out of context clips that are funny, that are going viral. They might click one or two. And then typically it's a procedural. So it's like a case. So they kind of figure this out over the course of like five different clips. 
and then they move on with their life. That's the TikTok experience. I got exactly what I needed out of this. I'm not interested in watching eight seasons of mm. like a show. And a lot of companies are like, well, if we put a full show on TikTok, people will watch it. Or if we find a way to like bring that TikTok audience to our our streaming service, people will watch it. And it's not, they're not looking for the show. In that moment, that video, which they're scrolling past in a state of like totally zombified. And I say this because I do this. They are not interested in the show itself. It is like a specific thing has happened. And they're like, "I, you piqued my interest. Mm. I will watch this for two minutes. And then I'm moving on with my life. And it's, it's, I think there's a lot of energy waste in like converting that audience instead of just understanding that like content flows to different platforms for different behavioral reasons and trying to capture that energy and convert it to something that takes 18 X as long on a platform that is not as easy, (laughs) at least accessible on their phones that they can't just kind of go back to not going to happen, but doesn't mean your content is not valuable when they're in the mood for it they might seek it out or they'll seek out something else that you're doing because they're going to your app for a very specific reason. And I think there's like this weird conflation with like we as Netflix or Peacock or Disney have to be YouTube and like you, but like YouTube is not trying to be Disney. Like, like I think learn from what YouTube and TikTok are doing. They're not trying to be you. They have a lot of attention, but you, there's still a a desire for the content you're producing. You just got to produce a little bit less of it. Good stuff. Um, We'll talk more about YouTube. Just to, just keep listening. Uh, another topic I wanted to mention, you wrote a piece about it, so we, we, we got to give them a little more attention here. Is Peacock. You did a, a whole piece on Puck about Peacock. That's a lot of P sounds that I just did there. <laughs> they doubled their viewership in January to 1.6%. They had the wildcard game, Five Nights at Freddy's. They had some breaking TV stuff with Ted and the Traders. They've got Oppenheimer now. The Olympics are coming this summer from Paris. Um, so you wrote a little bit about Peacock. And uh, among the things that you dealt with is, you know, did they learn some lessons about the kind of programming that works on Peacock? Maybe a little less prestige and a little more bravo. And um, does Peacock and what they're doing with Peacock also maybe make us understand this potential bundling with Paramount Plus and that relationship any better? Can let's let's talk a little bit about Peacock. Yeah, here. So also, I don't know what it is. Whenever I write about Peacock, it receives more replies than any other subject I ever talk about. Um, And I brought this up to some colleagues at Puck, and I won't say who said this, but one of my colleagues said, it's the New York Jets of streaming services. Ouch. And right. But I think in the sense that everyone has an opinion on it. And also, and they this person did not mean it in this way, but I will inflect it for my own reasons. I think secretly there are a lot of people who kind of want like like we saw with the Lions, like want the Jets to kind of have a moment, maybe not with Rogers, but they kind of want the Jets to be like, ah, like like you're going to get it. And I think with Peacock, the thing is, and here's my take. Peacock. I think rightfully understands it's not going to be the size of Netflix. I think Peacock even understands it's not going to be the number two to Disney. I think what it's beginning to understand is that it doesn't need to be spending $20 million on a show like Bel Air or whatever it is. It doesn't need to have a big sci-fi series. It's got three very important things going for it. One, it has Bravo. Bravo is one of the few networks whose audience age gets younger not necessarily on linear TV, but in terms of the brand awareness, its audience is younger and it's hyper online. That means you're getting a lot of earned media, 
a lot of people who will pay for access to it because they have to watch their favorite show and they have to do it live in order to kind of be part of the conversation. And Bravo is easily, uh, like when you think about the shows, um, you can replicate it as franchise because it's like all of them are just connected and people are rearing into the drama and they get attached to these characters. And it's cheap. You can do it super cheaply. So that's one. Two, sports working well for for NBC, right? Like they've got sports on there. It, they're now building out a bigger, a stronger slate. So they're, and, and they're having more sports. So they're keeping some more of that audience. Their churn is actually reduced slightly over the last little bit. Um, they're adding the most subscribers on their ad supported tier. So they, and, and because they were seeing that increase in engagement, that's what Jason was saying. Like, that's what was so important to me. That increase in Nielsen um, viewership is really a sign of engagement. So if you're an advertiser, all of a sudden being on Peacock is because of the fact that you've got 70% of new subscribers coming to Peacock on the ad supported tier, you know, you're going to reach them. The engagement is increasing. The actual ROI on that advertising spend on Peacock is slightly better than it might be even on a Netflix because you're like, well, how many people is this actually reaching on the ad supported tier? We don't know because most of them are on, on are ad free. And so this idea that like, okay, so Peacock's got a really strong potential ad revenue here and they're pushing people more towards the premium, premium plus, which is the ad free tier. And we're seeing more signups. So that's really strong. Um, and three, and this is where I think they don't necessarily get enough credit. They're actually reducing spend because they kind of realize like we can just use a lot of our broadcast that has an audience, but they don't watch it on broadcast and they'll come here on top of the Bravo and the sports. And we can create a pretty strong complementary product to be merged with another product, not in terms of merge in terms of acquisition, but I think if you look at the Paramount Plus and Peacock, and, and we know that Paramount and NBC Universal like talked about this to an extent. Um, we don't know how far those those talks have gone, but we know they there have been talks. Um, Paramount Plus's audience tends to be slightly older, more male, heavy procedural. If you think about um, a heavy kind of like drama in terms of Yellowstone, they've got the NFL, which is great, um, but they don't have a lot of other sports. They do have local affiliates, which is great. Uh, and they've got a really strong film library uh, and a strong TV library. NBC Universal with Peacock, really strong uh, film TV library, a really strong first window, right? So they've got a lot of new movies that people are interested in coming directly to Peacock in their first window. Um, they've got the reality side, they're younger female presenting. They also have strong sports and they've got strong local. So you've got now a house that has m- multiple NFL games on Sunday, which is really important. You've got local baseball. You've got to, uh, to an extent, some, some local, I think a little bit of local, no, no just local baseball. Um, you've got the Olympics, you've got college sports, you've got, um, the, the, inter- the international soccer stuff, reality procedurals, Tyler Sheridan, Andy Cohen, that product, you would not necessarily have to invest in much more heavily than you currently are because a lot of their product is coming directly from the, um, the, the broadcast networks. But you could actually just increase investment on a low average spend and really retain some of that audience that is going to make it your their number two platform or their number three platform alongside of Netflix and Disney Plus, right? It's this idea of like, they don't necessarily need to compete with Disney and Netflix. It's like, how do you compete with a Fox? How do you compete with a WBD? Like, that's where your real goal is. And I think Peacock for a long time, I was like, and I, I know people at Peacock, like I, I mentioned the piece, I spoke to their leadership team a couple of years ago. I was always confused by what their strategy was like. And I told them, I was like, you know, and, and again, I put this in the piece, like, this is not me being like, I figured out Peacock by any means, like no one has. But I remember being like, you know what you don't need is HBO style shows because HBO has them. You don't need Star Wars style shows because Disney has Star Wars. Like, what is the, this is what Jason was saying earlier, like, not only is just like, 
what is this product here for? Who is the audience that is not being served? Like, like who actually is the audience that you're really trying to reach here? Um, and it should be cord cutters to an extent, older, uh, older individuals who have access to this now because they're looking into maybe not having cable and they just want their, their, their soaps. They want the procedurals. They want their sports. They want their local news and finding a way to really create a bundled product for them at low cost where you're still investing in some of this programming that reaches younger audiences, whether it's Showtime, um, which has more premium budget, whether it's Bravo, um, kids programming, right. With Nickelodeon, this idea that's like, you can create something that's actually very interesting. And you'd also have the advantage of quantity. So you could actually continue licensing out to Netflix to re- ensure that your revenue is really strong as you're investing in new shows without worrying about depleting your own resources, right? And worrying about like, oh, well, if we license out XYZ, we're actually going to lose out because our audience is coming to us for that. No, not really, because your audience is now coming to you for Yellowstone and like and Traders. Like they're they're coming to you for something completely different. And now these shows happen to be there. They're not coming to you for your library that's also on Netflix where they're spending more of their time. So I just think like the, and and the, and I ended this piece by saying, look, Peacock is out of all the companies probably the worst financially positioned. They're growing the fastest, but they are not in a great place financially. There's a lot. They they still have a relatively low subscriber count compared to others. Um, they are not narrowing their losses as fast as other companies that are taking much more uh, exp- um, uh, much more drastic co- cost cutting uh, efforts, putting those into place. But so so here, so I'm not trying to say Peacock is figured out or Peacock is the future. I'm just saying I think for a long time, to quote my puck colleague, they have been the New York Jets of streaming, and I think we've been viewing them through the lens of Zach Wilson as their quarterback. And I'm curious to see if Aaron Rodgers, you know, when Aaron Rodgers comes back, what can the Jets be with this new player? And I think that's kind of how I'm looking at Peacock, especially with the Paramount Plus lens. It's like that suddenly to me gets interesting in a way that neither of those services were interesting uh, before. Right. We will we will see. I'm intrigued by it. Also, as a, a Premier League soccer fan, I'm using Peacock all the time for that, honestly. So... Um, uh, the sports, see, it all comes back to sports again, doesn't it? <laughs> New York Jets, references, sports corners, all those things. Sports Always. pentagons. All right. Um, the, we have reached our um, hour, so we're going to wrap here. I've got a few letters that um, we didn't get to, but uh, we will get to next time, I promise. And I would love more. So if you have a question for Julia, go to downstreamfeedback.com and send us your question we love to hear about it love to your mothers should we do a letters uh episode in the next few next few weeks if if the if the news would slow down if they would stop announcing spoolus maybe i know dear executives please slow down so jason and i can do some letters okay but downstreamfeedback.com send them in we'd love to hear you um and uh, if you haven't yet, please consider subscribing to Downstream Plus. This was a full-sized episode for everyone, but the only way to hear the complete version of our next episode will be to subscribe. Go to downstream.plus to subscribe and support the show. You can find Director of Strategy Julia at parrotanalytics.com and puck.news. You can find me at sixcolors.com and on many other podcasts at RelayFM and theincomparable.com. But that's it for this time. Until next time, Julia, say goodbye. Bye, friends. I hope we're not the jets of podcasting. Ha, ha, ha.